Welcome to This Osteopathic Life. This is Dr. Amelia Beakey. I am honored to share with you the philosophy that has underscored my personal and professional life and explore how osteopathy truly is for the health of all things. I see these principles in action every day in my varied roles as physician, parent, athlete, writer, musician, coach, and entrepreneur, and hope they will light the way for the path to your best health. Please note that while I am a physician, this podcast is intended to share general information and encourage discussion about medicine, health, and related subjects. The content provided in this podcast and in any linked materials is not intended and should not be construed as medical advice. Thank you for joining me for episode 23 of season one of This Osteopathic Life. This is part two of a podcast entitled Perspective, the first of which was published last week. And if you join me for that episode, I thank you. And if you recall, during the course of that episode, I referenced an article from Economic and Political Weekly from December 2003 entitled Changing Perspectives in Public Health from Population to Individual, authored by Vijay Kumar Yadavendu. And if you were able to source that article and review it, that's great. I envision this a bit like a journal club where we will have read something and can reflect on it and we'd love to open it to discussion and we'll look for a better medium to do that. Certainly if you know me, we can do so. And maybe opening up an online forum that gives space for folks to share their opinions and experiences and ask questions um, and learn from one another. And a brief summary of how the concept came to be on reviewing last week's podcast, the idea of perspective came up a number of times and what there was to be said about it evolved over the course of the week and investigating different topics. And if you recall, last week I was reporting from Ashland, Oregon, where I am currently, and wildfire smoke had set into the valley a few days prior to the recording of the podcast. And interestingly enough, Against all odds, the air is quite clear at the moment here. If you are able to see the visual, I upload a new picture for each episode of the podcast, and it showed our valley the days before the smoke came in with crystal clear blue skies, and you can see the details of the trees on the mountains, and the second picture, a very obscured horizon and landscape. And we're back to looking uh, much like the first today. And to be honest, most folks didn't think that would happen because normally we rely on the rains to clear away the smoke and those can sometimes wait until the fall. So we're quite lucky. And the true perspective, the visual perspective is much improved. And I would say the perspective of the collective here was relatively robust, though there were certainly cohorts of people who were pretty traumatized by the onset of smoke and it does make you stop and think if it's sustainable to be here and you know what you're willing to put up with and what you need to change be that just how you approach it and your acceptance of it as we talked about last time or uh, truly your integration and arrangement with the area 
So I'm pleased to announce that we're improved. And in my week goal of approaching things with radical optimism and positivity, which I'll be honest, is definitely a work in progress. I'm also pleased to report that I'm recording this after just coming from the most perfect nap. And I don't know about you, but I don't have much time in my life or space in my life for naps. And the perfect nap can be quite elusive. You know, there might be times when you have the time to nap and you go to lie down and just simply can't fall asleep, which can be really frustrating because you're still tired and cranky. And if any of you have ever read the Elephant in Piggy series by Mo Willems, uh, there's one book about taking a nap and the crankiness that precedes the need for that. And there are other times you fall asleep and sleep for too long and then you're more tired than when you began and you're kind of groggy and equally cranky. But there are moments and scientifically when you get into the appropriate amount of sleep and REM stage and restfulness and leave it at the right time. You know, some of these more modern inventions will be tracking a person's sleep cycle and use an alarm to help wake them at the right time so they're on that upswing. They're on a more alert trajectory so that when they wake up, they won't feel so tired. And so today, with radical optimism and positivity and gratitude, I'm so happy to say and grateful to report that I had this great nap. It was maybe 30 minutes long, midday, in the sunshine, in a lovely space that I was able to uh, rent for the weekend here in Ashland. And I woke feeling good and with the concepts for this podcast fresh in my mind. You know, I went to sleep knowing I needed to come into this recording when I woke up and it was there. These ideas were fresh, so I appreciate that. Sending out gratitude to the universe. And so I'd like to delve into this article and highlight some points that really struck me. And I think what spoke to me the most, and admittedly I've been accused sometimes of being anti-capitalist and pro-socialism and unrealistic um, with my thoughts and ideologies and philosophies. And after the course of this health policy fellowship, maybe I'll know more where I fit on that spectrum. But I do know that I tend toward thinking that there is a collective responsibility and do have a sense of frustration when things become commodities and it just skews the true value. It undermines the individual's capacity for growth on a broad scale, certainly some individuals can benefit from that. It's kind of if you're in the right place at the right time with the right resources, um, commodification can be quite helpful. But in other circumstances, it can be really limiting to folks who are still kind of working in sustainable, meaningful ways. And I think about this some with crops. You know, we've subsidized certain crops in this country, and it has totally shifted our food system. It has shifted our nutritional recommendations and status of individuals and has led to a lot of chronic disease development. 
And when I think about the farmers that I know who grow in traditional ways, you know, with uh, multiple crops and thoughtful development of the land for sustainability and rejuvenation of the soil, it can be hard to compete, you know, when there aren't subsidies made for those type of practices. And what stuck out to me in this article from the Economic and Political Weekly about public health was looking at how health has become a commodity. And I'll start with a brief summary at the beginning of the article and delve into some of these concepts. And again, welcome perspectives to come back to me and broaden my understanding and awareness and ability to integrate into my own practice and into the development of health policy so I can provide a positive influence on a broader scale in our world. We go through the timeline of the development of medicine and looking at the time of Aristotle and looking at the organic unity of all things and examining the world, seeing how it behaves when there's no interference. And there wasn't really necessarily an intent to change or interfere, but see how things work. And looking at the farming example, if you have the opportunity to see the movie Biggest Little Farm, it's about a couple who takes on some land north of Los Angeles and seeks to rejuvenate it and puts in place solutions through the natural order of things. And it takes a lot of work, a tremendous amount of work, and a lot of frustration and a lot of hang-ups and restarts. But they are, are able to oftentimes solve the problem with something in their ecosystem, just a realignment or a shift or you know, a different pairing. And I think about that in osteopathy a lot. We look at how can things be realigned? What shift needs to be made? What's the mismatch? What structure isn't facilitating and upholding the right function? And the solutions are often there. You know, we have a lot of tools in our physiology to do things properly. And sometimes we line it up wrong. Sometimes we are exposed to things that reduce our functional capacity. And we need to observe, see where it's working well, why it's working well, identify what is the mismatch, what obstructions are present where it's not going well, and shift that. Um, so that's the beginning of this view. And then the author notes that over time it becomes a more mechanistic practice of medicine. And in the time of Descartes, considering health as the perfect working order of the human organism, the illness is natural and also individual. And that can kind of take away any social or environmental contribution. And as scientific medicine progressed, there was this movement, intentionally or not, toward objectifying patients and they use the word denying status as social beings. And I have the citations for this article in the notes for this episode for your reference. And I stopped and paused and thought about that. And when we started to get more specific, you know, with definitions of disease, there's this isolationism that happens. And we take out the context of the patient and their environment and their social status and broader history and exposures and it was very interesting to me to stop and think about that and think about how medicine has been practiced and that certainly there are trade-offs you know there are many benefits that have come from developments 
in medicine and you know scientific exploration. But I think we would be remiss to blow over the fact that some parts perhaps got lost along the way that were beneficial to the optimal care of the patient as a whole person and as a part of the whole collective of society. And so a three-part comparison or trajectory that was highlighted in this article was the idea of moving from bedside to hospital to laboratory medicine and looking at how medical thought and practice evolved and where the shifts were and how that started to influence patient care and the overall health in society. So in bedside medicine, and I grew up watching Little House on the Prairie, so I think of, in their illustration, like Doc Baker. You know, he lived in town, he was aware of everyone and their families and their work and their past sicknesses and you know, the challenges they had if they lost a crop and what economically and nutritionally they might uh, not have adequately in their lives to influence their health. And so in this case, the patient was at the center of the experience and they were treated as a whole. They were a known entity as a complete person in their social and environmental context. And through the time of the Industrial Revolution, as we moved into more urban environments, which were relatively unhealthy, we didn't have the sanitation, awareness, skills, infrastructure to support living in such high-density populations. And we also moved to hospital care. And we had these buildings developed where the sick people were taken, because often people were taken care of in their homes historically prior to that. And the focus on that patient in their natural setting began to get lost. And cases in this time began to be focused more on the disease versus the person and kind of categorization. You know, you had pneumonia patients and you had heart failure patients and you had less of, you know, this is John and his heart's not working well and these are his exposures and these are his children and these are his stressors and you you lost some of that along the way. And not to say we do take you know, comprehensive histories, but it's something about really knowing the patient contextually. You know, you're living with them. You get it. You're, you're in there and understand their struggles and their victories and their history on a different level. And there was a quote in this section of the article from Illich from 1976. I'm going to read it to you and pause for a moment and see what we think about that. If sickness and health were to lay claim to public resources, then these concepts had to be made operational, ailments had to be turned into objective diseases. Species had to be clinically defined and verified so those officials could fit them into words, records, budgets, and museums. The object of medical treatment as defined by a new, thorough submerged political ideology acquired the status of an entity that existed quite separately from both doctors and patients. And I honor that we benefit from having detail and understanding and categories. It makes it easier to file information. It makes it easier to draw on experience. This looks like this. You have elements of familiarity that help us to move more quickly to a diagnosis and an appropriate treatment. But whenever we have to put something in a box... You know, we have certainly snuffed out components of the individual that likely matter, and sometimes to a minor degree, sometimes to a major degree, 
on the efficacy and the outcomes of the application of treatment. And that was a part where I just went back and I read and read that component of the article again. And this mechanized approach with, you know, again, high increases in population density was probably necessary at the time to make it through. I would challenge decreased the overall quality of medical care. So that was bedside to hospital medicine. And then moving into laboratory medicine in the late 19th century and thinking about this time is when germ theory came to be known. And uh, we were looking at specific etiologies for disease and often blaming the individual. And at this point, too, we began to ignore any predispositions they might have, whether it be physiologically, genetically, socially, and simply looked at, you got this disease and we're going to treat that disease and that's it. And at this time, too, doctors became more interventional rather than observational. And pausing here, benefits, certainly, we can improve outcomes and prevent death from various diseases and exposures and physiological abnormalities through surgical intervention. And no doubt that has preserved and prolonged and made possible lives that would have otherwise been lost. And there's certainly room in medicine for intervention, but how far does the pendulum swing And what benefits did we lose by not having the capacity for true, thorough observation of patients? And this is a point that often comes up with patients, and it often comes up in the surgical realm. And I can think back to training, and one of the surgeons I really respected and admired for his technical skill, his knowledge, as well as his personal experience with patients and he would always list you know the choices when outlining you know potential surgery for patients and one was always to do nothing and that can be a really hard place to be because we're in a world of answers and certainty and again developing technologies that make it seem like we should always there should always be something we can do and that isn't always the case or it's not always the best idea even if there is something we could do, should we do it, is often a question we have to navigate. And I'll talk to patients about that with anytime we need to get lab studies or imaging to say we should have an idea of what we're going to do with this information. Because once you have obtained it, now, I wouldn't say your burden, but you have made it your responsibility to make another decision based on what the results of those studies might show. And not that there aren't moments where it's truly indicated, and certainly there are emergent moments as well, but all the time we should operate with that concept. What am I expecting to find? What am I willing, able, going to do? Do I understand that there's no true finite answer or guarantee? Because there are so many variables within each individual and each situation that can influence the outcome of any disease process and the intervention that might come along with it.
So that was also a point in the article that I appreciated and took pause. So we moved into laboratory medicine model. You know, disease became understood as a failure in or of the individual. You know, your system didn't work well, or you did this wrong, or you made this choice, and that's why you got sick. And kind of ignored what role society might have played in that individual becoming ill, or even society being the medium through which germs arrived um, to the individual very passively rather than looking at all the different variables that could have come into play. There was a piece, a sentence, a line in this that was one of those big aha moments in this section of the article. And I'm going to read the two components of them to you. Scientific medicine became consistent with and legitimated capitalist development by integrating a model of healing with the social structure, obscured the relationship between disease and the nature and form of social development. The doctrine of specific etiology facilitated transformation of health into a commodity, amenable to sale in the market, fulfilling the basic need of the capitalist system for commodification. It meant that health problems became problems of the body that required consumption of some form of technological treatment. And Navarro is quoted in this section saying there is a need for consumption, consumption that reflects a dependency of the individual as something that can be bought. And I sat with this for a long time and I've looked at the number of articles and videos and calls to action on the concepts of physician burnout and you know the moral injury of the practice of medicine currently and there's lots of different angles that have been taken to explain that and to propose solutions to that in this part really spoke to me in this where we've transformed health into a commodity and we've found all these things you know various medications and programs and interventions that can save health or correct health or create health and ignored the natural capacity for health. We ignored this collective influence on health, the social, economical, physiological, environmental components, and just made it so you need to do this to be well and all the responsibility is placed on the individual and all help becomes professionalized and as I said before I'm a physician and certainly I see the benefits and the need for physicians and the space for other health professionals you know, having worked in a integrative medicine clinic this past year I can see where folks benefit from having this team of professionals educated in various realms of health, be it nutrition or movement or behavioral health. And certainly in medicine um, as a technical specialty and art in delivery. But it also has become a world where sometimes those solutions that existed in our community and that we do have the capacity to do for ourselves have been taken away. And now you need this external resource that you pay for to achieve health 
And sometimes we're chasing problems that we've created. Again, some nutritional recommendations from governing bodies have been inappropriate. And now we're playing catch up and having to solve these chronic disease crises that are expensive, both financially and physically and emotionally for people who are suffering from them. And I think this was the part that I really hope we will begin to address. And for me, through the Health Policy Fellowship component and my colleagues through truly examining where health exists and how we're treating it and what we're really expecting from an individual and if it's reasonable or if we need to broaden that scope and look at how their health is truly being influenced on a societal level and how that can improve the application of treatment and the outcomes from that treatment. And I certainly felt this kind of washing over of some guilt as a follow-up comment to the idea of placing all responsibility on the individual and professionalizing help was that as we promote awareness of potential dangers caused by individual lifestyle choices and motivate the individual to participate in health promotion and health education programs, created kind of some surveillance and control. And again, the attention is turned away from those true deeper underlying causes of health or the lack thereof. And I do appreciate the big movement um, toward developing resilience in reference to adverse childhood experiences and the work with that known as ACEs, highlighting what it means to have a lack of support and adverse effects in your youth that can make it difficult to make the right choices, to have the resources to implement them. And I think it's speaking to this in a way where, yes, there's room for personal responsibility, but it can't be the end-all, be-all. And we need to be able to have a broader vantage point when we consider why a person's making the choices they have or if they're having recurrent illness, what else is underlying that and how can we have a broader influence on that component. Moving farther into the lineage, as we gain more knowledge, we look at the genome, and we are now getting even more specific about why someone uh, might be sick and we're trying to predict it. But our scope becomes so narrow, again, in that point, that we might miss key factors that are truly undermining the capacity for their health to exist. And the idea of epidemiology, you know, generally refers to populations, but as we've gotten more into clinical epidemiology, it gets very individualized and looks at specific treatments and looks at the cause of disease in an individual and deficiencies internally, physiologically with that person and begins or continues, I should say, to ignore the environmental, social, political influences on that person. And so it's a balance point. There are certainly always going to be trade-offs, and it's where we can nudge the pendulum back the other way a bit and maintain the idea that there are factors influencing this person's health, yes, unique to them, but also need to be addressed on a broader scale in society. And Dr. Fryman, I think I mentioned this 
in previous podcasts, early episodes, uh, was one of our leading researchers and practitioners uh, out of England and then spent most of her time in Southern California. The latter years of her practice noted that she appreciated the science and the research and participated in it herself, but also that she treated her patients one at a time as that's how they presented to her in that moment as they were in the context of their life in that moment. Uh, and that's where she found her greatest success with patients. And that can be a hard place to be because we do demand science and evidence-based medicine and that helps keep a standard. But I would encourage us to expand beyond that. That can be a framework and a jumping off point. But we also need to be able to see the individual and see where our influence can extend for the better beyond, around, within, and through them. So a few other resources that came up, again, as I searched in this article, they were encouraging, looking for where people are addressing this and how we can learn from what's already in existence and where there are gaps to be filled. The National Quality Forum released case studies speaking to communities who have made the effort to improve quality of life of the patient. And the Alliance for Health Reform and Health Management Associates determined four essential attributes needed to define quality care from the view of patients themselves. And they noted it was important to recognize and respect a person's full range of needs as well as the needs of their caregivers. And that's a piece we run into a lot in this uh, sandwich generation, as it's known, taking care of both parents and children. Second, addressing the full range of needs into a plan that is safe and timely. Again, are our recommendations realistic? Can they implement them? Or what course of time would it require? Third, making the plan easily understandable so they can easily access the services they need and the services they do not. And that's a piece, too. This might be helpful for you, but no resources exist in your area or within your price range to get them. So the reality of the matter. And the fourth is to provide feedback, to continue to learn and provide more suitable care in the future. So that was really helpful. From The Lancet, Dr. Anders Nordstrom from Sweden had this quote. What are required are societies where values, knowledge, and infrastructure support and empower people to live long and healthy lives. And thinking about the context of his home country in Sweden, you know, what pieces are in place there as far as health insurance and childcare and maternity leave and education, things that truly have been shown in science, in articles, in research, to be sustainable for health. From the Seattle Times, uh, Dr. Kular, K-H-U-L-L-A-R from 2018, writes that efforts to inject more personal responsibility into healthcare have not consistently been shown to lower costs, improve outcomes, or save lives. Personal responsibility is not a binary construct. When we say unhealthful behavior, overeating, smoking, excessive alcohol use, is not your fault, we may rob people of the initiative to change it. When we say that the same behavior is all your fault, we fail to recognize a more complex reality. Health is a product of genes, environment, work, education, family, medical care, and many other factors. So that one too, how do we strike a balance between this is up to you to change or we recognize as a society we have a responsibility to create an environment that is promotional of health. And the last quote from Janine Interlandi from 2009 reports that education, income, and social status 
What's advertised on billboards or sold in stores around people and how clean the air they breathe and streets they walk on are kept have as much to do with their health as diet, exercise, and doctor's appointments. Research shows that as income goes up, social networks improve and stress levels go down. Both of these correspond to better health. So does education. Studies show that it exerts an even stronger influence on health than income, occupation, or access to health care. So as we seek to solve these crises in health and physician burnout, doing some true root cause analysis and seeing what is actually contributing to the lack of health for us and for our patients and how we can have a meaningful impact on that is what I have gained from this reading. And I welcome the discussion that will potentially follow and see what happens in the next year as they learn how to make waves in the political realm for the health. And that wraps this two-part episode. Thanks for joining me. This is Millie Beaky with This Osteopathic Life. Thank you for listening.